Speak to us in Elvish, Glenn. <laughs> oh, Sylvan Penn and Muriel. Oh, dear God. Ah, Elbereth. Ah. He did it! Oh, wait, that's Klingon. The Incomparable. Number 124. January 2013. Welcome back to The Incomparable Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Snell. And tonight's topic is going to be... Uh, a series of movies uh, based on a series of books, or depending on how you want to view it, a, move, a really, 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 really long movie released in parts based on a book that was really long and also released in parts. Yes, we're going to talk about The Lord of the Rings, and although we may uh, touch on the book here and there, this is not an episode about the books so much as it is an episode about the movies. I suppose we can reserve the J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, books for, for a different podcast, a different episode in like 2018. But in the meantime, we're going to talk about the movies. I do have my thousand page co- single volume bound uh, paperback copy of <laughs> Lord of the Rings here so that I can uh, read the songs of Tom Bombadil from it uh, and sing some Elvish later. But before we get to that, I'd like to introduce my guests who are joining me on this journey that may take about 11 hours to complete uh my uh first my first member of our little fellowship tonight is glenn fleischman hi glenn melon watermelon hello hello (laughs) it's good to hear from you although i don't understand what the heck you're talking about you so you've watched the movies and that didn't make any sense no i'm with you glenn you've read the books yes i think you're a fraud jason Uh, speak friend and answer i don't speak elvish Glenn, it's a foreign language. I don't speak foreign languages. (laughs) Besides which, I was too busy worrying about the monster that was obviously in the pool, but but we'll get to that. Also on my fellowship, (laughs) although I'm suspicious he keeps eyeing the ring, he may be after it. It's Andy Anatko. Hi, Andy. Well, I watched the movie and that didn't make any sense. And I'm referring to the movies and not what Glenn had said. Fair enough. Either way, really. Thank you for for making me uh, for for making me watch like all ten hours again, which I, I legitimately was a good thing because I, I there were actually much much of these DVD sets that I had never actually watched because I never actually I, I when I bought the the first movie I got through the whole thing I bought the second movie and I got through about half of it and just never got around to the rest of it bought the third movie kind of started it and zipped to the ending because i wanted to see that part where uh where uh, where you know uh, you know frodo has to go away and i have to cry because the girl from the arrhythmics is any lennox is starting to sing and ah. it's time for me to cry but I, this is the first time i've actually sat down and watched all three of these movies so this was a good good i didn't make good you reason really. you you volunteered you, you knew the job was dangerous when you took it you were the enzyme to the latticed protein of lord of the rings viewership all right I'll accept that. That's okay. You but, you know, I'm th- I believe in free will. <laughs> uh, also joining me on this fellowship uh, is my, uh, my, my good uh, friend from the Shire who likes to keep me company and occasionally polish my shoes. It's Dan Morin. Hi, Dan. Oh, sorry, Mr. Jason. <laughs> <laughs> Give me some, fry up some rabbit. Okay, Mr. Some Jason. Some conies. We're going to make it to the end of this podcast. Ah. Uh, no, I promised I wouldn't we? do a stupid voice, and yet, and yet there I've it done is. one anyways. There it is. I blame you. This podcast will all will all be uh, be dead by the end of this podcast. And uh, is there is there anybody I have have failed to interest? Why yes, it's the most important member of the fellowship. He's our gray wizard. It's John Syracuse. I think I am the tallest, so I guess that qualifies. With the hat, mm. the hat gives me extra height. It does. The pointy hat. 
Like Andy, I think this is the first time I had cracked open the super duper extra long bladder buster edition of these movies that I have what? on Blu-ray and uh, went through them all. So uh, I, hope, I hope it was worth it. Man, I watched them all in one day. I think it's my third or fourth time watching the extended ones. You definitely got to be wearing your astronaut underwear for to get through these movies. Or you could just pause one or the other. <laughs> I guess before we, we get into the, the details of these movies, I wanted to uh, go around and ask everybody what their... Um, what their experience watching them was, and we've touched on it a little bit right here, which is, you know, did you see them? Did you see them in the movie theater? Uh, have you watched them on video? Obviously, there are these extended editions that are available on video as well as the theatrical editions. So there are lots of different ways you can you can uh, view these movies. And given how long they are, do you watch them across a, a few days, or three days, six days, something like that, or or do you put in the astronaut underwear and just get it all done, get her done? Uh, Glenn, what about you? Uh, well, I saw the original releases in the movies theaters and um, movies theaters. Precious, <laughs> and, sorry, precious theaters. <laughs> and uh, then when the uh, extended uh, versions came out, I got those immediately because I'd uh, I got the fellowship first, and I thought that. Um, even though the movies in the theaters were pretty long to begin with, I actually did think there were extra dimensions that made the sort of interminable battle scenes in some of the films and the walking and so forth more bearable because there was more of the um, mythology and more subtlety that they put back in. So I've watched, I have the three uh, extended editions in, uh, in DVD form and I've watched those several times. I think at least, I think the most recent watching is maybe the third or fourth time i've watched them and um i did a lot more fast forwarding this time around than i have in previous viewings yeah it it it, it was a tough one for me i, I think that psychologically it would have been better if it had been set up like game of thrones where they if they had cut the movie into like hour-long episodes where mentally you know that you don't have to keep your brain cpu overclocked following all these pl all the plot and all these characters and all these locations because at the end of one hour there's going to be a break at the end that's and there's going to be sort of a natural bounce recap at the beginning. That's not a in the previous episode of Lord of the Rings. There's going to, they're going to, they're going to accept that they, they just like in Boardwalk Empire, they always start and end an episode with an old timey 1920 song with a <laughs> montage of like here's where we are right now and here's what's going on in Chicago and here's what's going on in New York City. Okay, I remember that's the Rothstein guy. He's gonna he's gonna try to get into the heroin business. Good, I'm I, I'm, I'm situated. I know where I where I am. It, it, even when you're sitting at home and you're trying to get through these movies, there's like, oh, another really, really dark place filled with really grimy-looking people who are turning on each other. Okie dokie. Well, only way through it is through it. Let's do it. I, I, I did see all the movies in the theater first. Um, uh, I, I just... Uh, it's it's such there's such it is a, a mental marathon, isn't it? Because I I never I, I had the exact same problem when I read the books as a kid because I read The Hobbit, loved The Hobbit, and so the next thing is oh my god I'm gonna get this three volume slipcased version of this either the 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 next move, the books in the series, and I think I got most of the way through the first one. And it's like it's like in many cases it's like walking through thick mud. You can do it, 
but after you kill your initial momentum, it's just lift the leg, move it forward, plant it down, lift the other leg, move it forward, plant it down. And I just never got that sort of momentum going in the books. And with the movies, it's kind of the same way where just my brain cannot keep track of all these things that are going on and why who who has the football in the in this movie who has it's it's supposedly about just the ring that has to get back and you know got to slam dunk it into uh, into the volcano uh, into the lava but why are we seeing these other things and who what's what what pieces are being settled and fitting together I did enjoy it, but man, I you really have to focus and work on this to keep the brain moving to make sure you can follow these things. That's what it was a little bit tough for me for. There's a lot going on here, and and I I, I want to see how everybody else has also uh, viewed these. I'll I'll say that I do wonder if uh, you mentioned Andy the the idea of uh, if this was an HBO series instead of a a, a bunch of long movies. I don't I saw him in the theater the first time since then only on video only the extended edition and we do the extended edition the movies are so long that they're broken up across discs so there are six discs for all of Lord of the Rings and um, for the first time this year my my kids watched with us but previously my wife and I would watch it um, not necessarily every year at the end of the year during the holidays but almost almost and we watch it across six nights which I like to call Hobbit Hanukkah. <laughs> It's a six six night celebration, um, and you know what? In six hour and a half ish installments, it I it really works for me. I I mm. it's enough, but not so much that I feel like it's a slog. And if I watch them over the course of six nights or seven or eight nights, but not one a week or something like that, I can keep the story straight and I know where we were when we left off. And uh, it works. It's the only movie that I do like that. But it, um, I don't think I could I could bear to watch it in one sitting. But as a miniseries, essentially a six night miniseries, uh, it, it it works for me. I, I want to ask Dan and and John what their uh, you know what their viewing methodology was for this crazy <laughs> crazy work, Dan. Uh, well, the first time I saw them each in the in the theater, and before the Return of the King theatrical showing. Uh, at the time, I was working in in IT, so I borrowed a projector from work, and we marathoned the first two before going to an evening showing of Return of the King. Um, and in between then, I think maybe I've seen the extended editions once in the intervening almost, or I guess, decade now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this was the first time I had watched them in a really long time and watched them uh, all on different nights. So split them up, one movie per night over three nights, but it was over the course of a couple. I, we watched the first two pretty close together, and then the third one uh, I kept having to put off due to scheduling stuff, um, but just just finished it before, right before this podcast started recording. Do I remember, didn't they, some theaters show, um, like, I think in Seattle, someone showed, maybe Cinerama, the Great Restored Theater, like the entire extended thing as a one-day deal with breaks. Like, I don't know what you paid for to see it, but like the entire thing in one, you know, twelve-hour session or whatever. That wouldn't, that wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I feel like there's plenty of places that would that would likely do something like that. Yeah, I can't even imagine. But you know, people do that. People do the. They did that for the Dark Knight, right? Where they did the they did Batman Begins and Dark Knight Returns and Dark Knight Rises in a one day. Of, I just I can't. That's one wow. sad day. That's it gets wow. worse. And worse. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I'm sure it does. John, what about you? What's your uh, viewing method for this for this thing? 
Well, I saw them originally in the theater, you know, when they were right. first run, uh, and I have the extended DVDs, which I watched once, I believe, and then I had the extended Blu-rays, which I've now watched once. I cheated, as I usually do, by using my children, uh, because <laughs> I, I showed them the uh, the uh, Rankin-Bass uh, Hobbit cartoon, because I figured it wasn't too scary. Sure. Uh, Torture, just to get the, Just to get them into... I, I, have a, I have a certain fondness for that cartoon, I will say that. The only thing I remember about that entire thing is... is is that the one with the song? They're all with the song. It's the Frodo, Frodo of the, the nine, nine fingers, fingers and the Ring of Doom. Doom. <laughs> that's ba- that's Bakshi. That's the Lord of the Rings ones. I'm talking about the oh, Hobbit. Is it? No, oh, oh, the Rankin Bass oh, Hobbit. Hobbit. Okay. Oh, all right. Okay. We've blown our Frodo of the Nine Fingers way too early now. Damn I didn't it. show them the ones with the rotoscoping. The creepy rotoscoping. Uh, but yeah, so I showed them that to get them into it, uh, and then I tried <laughs> showing my son. Uh, fellowship a while back but it was the once the ring race came on the screen oh, it's it was too, too scary. much this was this many years ago so then I, I tried again now with the blu-ray and, and he liked it and so i watched all of them with him and it was broken up by his bedtime basically because we would watch and then he'd have to go to bed and then the next day we'd watch a little more and then he'd have to go to bed and i don't know how many days it took us because we weren't even completing like whole discs or half discs it was just like the little bit of time between <laughs> wow that's like know. hobbit ramadan <laughs> just yeah. stretch it out it, it went on many many days but <laughs> at, at, at a certain but he really wanted to know how the story ended so he was always like we got can we watch more of that can we watch more of that movie and he had no conception of like how many movies it was or how many discs he he thought it was just one big long movie and i told him no it's like six discs he's like oh all right well is there more can we watch more uh, so he found it engaging. Anyway, that's how I watched it the third time, I guess. So in the theater once, and then DVD, and then Blu-ray. Blu-ray installment plan yeah. with your son. Yep. Fair enough. And that, and that really does make it more enjoyable when you know you're watching with somebody who actually doesn't know how it ends, right? And is excited oh, yeah. and engaged by oh, it. God, so watching with, with my kids this time, um, they... Well, they like when when Gandalf plunges off the off the bridge. Yeah, so it was very very unexpected too. And they're yes, they're quite upset, and I'm I'm sitting there going, oh, "This is great! I'm I'm watching it work, right? I'm watching I'm watching their, their you know because they thought that was it for him." Yeah, don't don't see him again. Yeah, that's well, that's it's really powerful. I mean, I remember I, I do recall I actually did watch Fellowship of the Ring with uh, my cousins and their daughters who were kind of you know probably around ten or eleven at the time, um, and. I remember their visceral reaction at the end of Fellowship when Boromir gets shot, which is a great scene. It's really dramatic. Oh, yeah. And they were like physically like, you know, shocked. Yes. Like they were twitching like, oh, my God, <laughs> you know, because they it, it does do a good job of building those, you know, it does a good job of painting those characters. And they feel, you know, they really like them, I think. Yeah. Although my kids said that they um, they didn't like Boromir. So they, they totally they totally pick He's up on him, him being portrayed as being not that great a guy but they said they didn't like him until he died then they liked him then they felt bad for him right because he, he's well, he redeemed yeah i mean that's exactly what they're going for yeah, right? he i know it's fascinating to see it work right yeah, to well, watch absolutely. them and watch the machine return and watch my kids take that journey and get to the point where they're like oh i never liked him and now i feel sad that he's dead well, it's, yes. it's nice because as adults i feel like we're all kind of jaded oh yeah right? you know especially for most of us who read these stories as as kids and then saw the movies come out, and so it's nice. It's being able to see it through fresh eyes is kind of, it's a nice touch. There's a worthwhile point to make here too. Is that the difference? I mean, you know, there's obviously always differences between the book and movie and plot, and not that part. But in the book, Boromir does not appear that much. In the movie, he's always on screen, so he's always glowering, looking, fingering his sword. 
thinking ring-like it's thoughts. because yeah. Sean it, Bean is just so damn good looking. so good looking. But in the books, you know, you really go for pages at a time, which Boromir has no part except to defend the hobbits or run down a hallway. More like boring mirror. Uh-huh. Burn. <laughs> um, but there is that point that, that it when, when you have to visually portray nine people together for this long period of time, it's a different experience in reading a book in which that person is not. So I think Boromir comes across as much, I mean, he's played as more scheming and and malleable and weak in the book in the movie than in the book as well but i think we just see him all the time so they have to give him something to do he has business but the problem with it is that we've in the context of a, of a book almost anything is possible because there's so much variety in how a book is plotted and how characters are taken from the start to the ending in a movie there's almost everything falls into a very common trope and again i'm i'm saying outright that uh, i said earlier that i had not read the, uh, the 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 trilogy books i only read the hobbit from start to finish and i'd sort of put boromir into okay so they're setting him up as the guy that's going to cause trouble for the party that's going to be the constant danger but there's going to be a redeeming moment and probably he's going to die to to illustrate to the audience how how high the stakes were for the whole thing and it wasn't because I think that the the books were poorly written. I think it was because this is how I parse a movie. There's a point which you drop that penny, and I can I can't help but hear it you know, ring against the tiles. You know. Well, there's a textual shorthand. You know, there's a narrative shorthand that we've all become accustomed to because we all see how the machinery works. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, I think there is a there's a certain amount of predictability to that. But uh, again, you know. Uh, different seen through our jaded eyes than seen through the eyes of someone who is not as familiar with the, that formulaic progression. Sure. Well, and and Tolkien, I mean, so much so much fantasy is has come from Tolkien that it's hard. It's like you know, it's any of these things where somebody does something really innovative, but from the perspective of fifty years later, it doesn't appear very innovative. It's because everybody copied it. It was so innovative, so amazing. And then in hindsight it looks like it's just one of the pack when but no 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 it was first. And and with that, you know, we've got the the, the plot mechanisms here and a lot of the trappings of this world are uh, things that we know if we've seen a lot of movies and read a lot of uh, books, especially fantasy books. And uh, I was struck in in watching it with my kids that um, with a with a fresh pair of eyes, I mean, they were kind of enthralled, and they have they haven't seen a lot of stories like this. And they, you know, it it, it was impossible for me to watch this movie even the first time without thinking of the books at least. And I. I um, another aspect that I'd like to get into is uh, people's relationships with uh, with the source material, because for a lot of people, the books are something that you read a lot. I think John has read it multiple times on very small electronic devices. That's true. Um, and for some people, it's it, you know the books are an incredible part of their uh, their childhood memories or adolescent memories. I bought the book, the the version I've got in my hand right now, in two thousand when I was in London. And I read it in 2000, and I'd never read it before. So I didn't read it until I was 30 years old. And, um, and as a result, um, my, my view of the movies is very different, I think, from somebody who grew up with these stories and really knew the whole, the whole story going in. And then somebody else might have not read it at all and have a – like Andy – and have a completely different perspective too. So there's so many different ways you can come at, at a work like this. And, and so, you know, John <laughs> – you know, you have a you have a pretty close relationship with the with the source material. Does that how does that inf- impact how you view uh, these movies? 
You know, I was thinking about that when I was watching them again. The fact that although I've read uh, Hobbit and Lord of the Rings multiple times, maybe three, four times, uh, the last time I read them was probably right before The Fellowship came out, that I read through them like one last time before the movies came out, right? And so I haven't read the books in so long. Since since reading the books, I've now seen the movies three or four times. And a lot of like, you know, uh, the movies are starting to... I start to think, did that happen in the movie or did that happen in the book? Like, you know, which which parts did they change from the book or which part is, you know, and I get them mixed up in my head because I'm old, right? Uh, but still, when I watch the, the movies, it's it's a situation where the movies and the books, despite me not remembering what, what uh, events changed where and what was made up by, you know, the, the writers of the movies and not, when I picture them in my head, they're two almost entirely different things. I, just, I see nothing of the movies when thinking about the books and vice versa. And, uh, but you know, like in terms of like, what does the world look like? What do you picture in your head when you're reading the book? I do not picture anything from, from the movies, uh, despite the fact that, you know, that the movies are out there. And the other thing is when watching the movies, even now, even the super duper long extended editions, and, and also this is true of The Hobbit as well, which I just saw the first movie of, they seem to me like there's this big long story and we're going to dip the camera into the story for like 30 seconds and then pull it out. <laughs> and then we're going to dip it in and then we're going to pull it out. Totally disjointed. But as someone who's read the book so much, it's like, all right, well, that's fine because I know everything that comes between. But they just they just seem that way. It seems like it really seems like just dipping a movie camera into this gigantic river. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that part. And then you're like, okay, well, oh, yeah, I remember that part. Yeah, oh, that wasn't really in the books, I don't think. But anyway, all right, I see what you're getting at. And it just doesn't it doesn't feel like a cohesive whole, but it doesn't make me dislike the movies because I know all the parts that are in the middle because <laughs> I know the stuff. You know what I mean? And, and it, it's like highlights. Yeah, I've always thought it must be inaccessible to people who haven't read the book. I've worried when I've seen some of it. I'm like, this can't make any sense. The sequence of things that just happened, they just have to take it on faith or ignore all the gaps there because it doesn't make any sense. I mean, watching it again, it's really obvious there's stuff that doesn't make sense. Well, there, there's a there's a logic to it if you've seen, you know, if you're familiar with the the genre, I feel like. If yes, you're conversant you're right. with fantasy as a genre, you can wave your hands over a lot of it and be you're like, right. oh, yeah, you know, magic or whatever. You know, there is a certain yeah. logic to it. But I agree that it is, as you know, someone commented to me, um, you know, it's amazing that these became blockbuster mainstream hits given how preposterous they seem at times. It's like when someone shouts out, like, you know, oh, you are one of the race of Numenor, and the other person says, yes, I am. And it's like, uh, okay, then, well, let's I mean, move that's, on. That's not even the, sometimes <clears throat> that's not explained that much in the books either, because they have appendices and the Silmarillion and all, all this other stuff. Right, but right. it's just, it, like, it doesn't feel like they narratively fit together the way you would write scene, scene, scene. Like, this scene naturally leads to the next scene. It doesn't naturally need to this. There's, like, 600 pages that you just, like, you know, or, you know, the 50-page gap that you pulled out there. And the way they have to be interleaved in the book versus the way they're done in the movies is very, very different because of the medium, which is fine. But it's just the movies ne The movies always feel like, here are some highlights from a book that you liked. Yeah, except I've only mm -hmm. read the book once, and my wife has never read the book. And as with Game of Thrones, basically said, I'm not going to read these books, so we're just going to watch it. And uh, she has watched it with me multiple times and enjoyed it. Uh, all of those times, and the only thing that bothered her was not the not the plot. Because I think, I think honestly, you there are some amazing shortcuts that the that the brain takes, where you're like watching a movie and you just say, "All right, okay, that's you know." Uh, apparently, he is 
not going to get old very fast, right? And you're just like, Numenor, <laughs> it's a thing, whatever, he's a ranger. And you just are like, okay. And and if you've read the book, you might be like, oh, well, that has all this meaning. But if you don't, you just go, yeah, all right, fine. And you and it, it that hasn't bothered her. In fact, I would say, as with Game of Thrones, um, the uh, thing that gets my wife when she's watching these movies is is things like it's differentiating characters it's like which mm-hmm. which guy is that because as uh our yeah. our mutual friend philip michaels often has said uh and and lisa schmeiser uh what we really got here is elfy dwarfy beardy um <laughs> cloak like cloak guy yeah, I mean, then, when you, like, then when you add the too many pretty men with long yes, hair yeah you got aragorn yeah. boromir faramir uh Aomer, you know like it's, yeah. they all start to look they've all got stubble and beard well, this is a problem with thousand page books that yeah, there's just too many you can't have that many, characters, many characters in a movie yeah but even in the fellowship also, it's when they're like, all white guys too. yeah which is that guy which one is that because well so there's the elf guy and the dwarf guy and then there's the, there's the little hobbitses and then there's the two kind of Oh, I'm a manly guy with a with a. But there's the one with the beard and the one who just sort of hasn't shaved very much, right? Poorly shaved guy. Yeah. yeah once you get into, once you get into Rohan, that's when I think most casual people start to lose track. It's like, all right, I had the Fellowship down. They were all kind of together. They they were different heights, but now it's just Rohan. They're all just a bunch of scruffy horsemen. Yeah. Who's this horse guy? Well, in the Rohan scene, it seems like there's people who are going to be important later who are not, but they introduce them and give them screen time as if they will be. And then Eowyn is kind of like hanging around. And you're like, why do they keep going back to this? Why Eowyn is she person? there? It's like just. Just keep watching. She's the only interesting female character in the story. That's probably one of the reasons they keep going back to her. And she's not that interesting. The extended edition, I think, well, Eowyn uh, is much more interesting. And I think that whole part of the plot is more interesting in the extended edition, too. More interesting, but I, I don't know if necessarily I would say interesting. I, oh, more... I don't know. It's funny. I think she's one of the best centers of the two towers, I think. but The books or the movies? In the movie. But but is any but is anybody really going to dip into the extended edition for that reason though? I think the people no. the people who can who can instinctively understand the plot are the people who are already really in, familiar and invested with it, and they're kind of hungry to look at those chapters that weren't that didn't make it into part of the theatrical release. That's right. That's Rest, why I like rest that. if you rest if you got confused to begin with, I'm not going to invest. Gee, I, 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 again, <laughs> maybe maybe another half an hour would really clear this up for me. <laughs> if only this were longer, it would be clearer. Exactly. And my problem was it was it was a lot like it was a lot like Heaven's Gate. And have you, you guys ever seen Heaven's Gate, the Michael Cimino movie, like no. 1978, legendary movie that legendary disaster of a movie. It actually brought down Universal uh, United Artists. Uh, but not to get into the whole thing. But the uh, there is a two and a half hour version that doesn't make sense because it seems as though there are like f- scenes from three different movies going on side by side by side and you never know well what is the beginning middle and end of this what's the what character are we supposed to be following and what goal is supposed to be being made uh and then i i didn't get that i didn't really understand that so i sought out you can buy on get on video the three and a half hour director's cut that Uh was originally premiered at a film festival and it's only a longer version of four or five different movies that are sort of cut together and that's i i I didn't i'll say again i didn't i did enjoy lord of the rings but I got in there thinking that, okay, this is a movie about a ring of consummate evil that has to be brought back to its source and destroyed or else it's going to call, basically ruin everything. But that by the time you're in like hour two of this nine-hour movie, it feels like, no, they're telling six different stories of which the story of this – when the movie is not over, when the ring gets destroyed. It's also the, the story about the elves that may be sticking around but may not be sticking around. <laughs> it's also the story of how – why is this elf guy 
go, in love, elf woman in love with the, the the romance novel covers sword guy guy, and it just seems as though they're just it's a it's a multi <laughs> massively multi multiplayer uh, online game in which you can sort of like follow different friends as they both figure out no the, I'm going to play the game in which we try to drink the the woman in the chain mail under the table no I'm going to do the one where I'm trying to level up and finally fight the dragon uh, it, it's fun but it's like oh god I really wish there was a through line one through line for the entire thing this stuff is in the book though and that, and I I think that's one of the one of the the issues here, I actually think that the extended editions add a lot of good material, and that that there's other stuff in in the theatrical editions that um, is not as interesting as some of the stuff that's added by the extended. I would I would sort of recommend that anybody who's interested watch the extended edition. But the but the faithful adaptation, I wanted to mention. John mentioned you know you're dipping into scenes from this really long book. And even at 10 hours, you can't really adapt, or 12 hours, or 80 hours, or however long it is, you can't really adapt a 1,000-page book. And sometimes I think that uh, – and, and I know now that we know that that an even shorter book is being made into three movies by Peter Jackson. <laughs> it makes it even more difficult to, to, to think about this. But That's you know, a whole other podcast. There's, there's a whole other series of th- thousands of podcasts. So, uh, <laughs> my, so my point is, you know – it's great that they wanted to honor this very important book that meant so much to them by doing a faithful adaptation. But there's a lot of stuff in here that that I just look at and think, why is this in this movie? And I, as I'm saying, as somebody who likes these movies and watches them a lot, I'm struck every time I, I watch them by the things that, the things that appeal to me. There are certain things that appeal to me, and then there are other whole things where it's like, why is this here? And there's the whole. You know, yes, the elves leaving is important for the plot, and yet it's very strange and it's not explained very well. And then it should be a big deal. And, and the yeah. the romance, this weird abortive romance between Eowyn and, and Aragorn, um, and then at the end they like get her together with Faramir so that there's a happy and like, and like yeah. ending. And it's it's so poorly handled. And Eowyn is a, an interesting character, and the the the, the, the um, it, you know, to Glenn's point, that's true. But you know. There's so much of this, plus in the whole Liv Tyler thing, which you know that's a character that's kind of blown up in order to uh, have uh, more uh, women characters in the book, which is admirable. Except that you know she isn't that interesting, and if you're seeing these movies in the theater, she is your cue to go to the bathroom. By the way, <laughs> well, she, she's great. She's great in her first five minutes of her appearance, and then after that, that's it. Unfortunately, she has to play a lot of woe is me. Yeah, and that's part of my the inexplicable part too. Is um, we were talking about the books a minute ago. I mean, I think I've read. I've read the books when I was in uh, a teenager, and I may have read them. I've read them at least ten times, maybe more. Wow! I got, they're great. I think they're part of my, you know, they're part of my heritage. I'm, I'm a language fan, though. So you and John are in the I've read these books over and over and over again camp. Yeah, and I've read the Silmarillion. I've read the, you know, some of the other books. I'm in the middle of you guys. Apparently, I read Fellowship in fifth grade um, for the first time. I think I, I pretty quickly went through the three of them. Didn't read reread them. Uh, until right before, like John, right before the movies came out, um, and as as is you know my yeah. my notoriously poor memory, I did not remember <laughs> them at all before the movies came out. I I love the idea, and I love the fact that this you know he does create this world 
that's that's fascinating and, and iconic, right? You know, because so much has borrowed from from Lord of the Rings. That said, I find the books kind of ponderous and well, yeah. hard to get through. And that's for me, like, yeah, I read it as a, a, at a young age, but at the same time, it was more of a, it was like reading a historical document and at times literally like reading a historical document. I read the Silmarillion in like seventh or eighth grade. Oh, well, that's like, you're reading research at that point. It's like, it's reading a history book of things that never <laughs> no, happened. <laughs> notes. <laughs> It's like Tolkien is the only person who wrote his own fanfic. That's what happened. <laughs> Tolkien was a uh, you know philologist, he's, as is he's well a known. professor. He's a yeah, he's an yeah, professor. And it, you know these were written. He and, uh, and C.S. Lewis, Lewis yeah. had a bet, and they were going to both write science fiction novels, and I think they were both going to write <laughs> fantasy as well. And you know that's were, where out of did they have this, a bet with L. Ron Hubbard? <laughs> That's I know. Well, you think no? They had, they were part of that great. And uh, we group. all lost. They were lonely men. No, come on. You get Narn. You get the seven Narnia books from that, and you get the um, the Silent Planet series. Paralandra, yeah, 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 very deeply flawed, but very interesting books. Very different than most science fiction. I mean, I, I have fonder memories of Narnia, and maybe that's because I read them more. It's softer. It's easier. It's, it's more. Easier it's for kids. allegory. This is so. Well, what I was going to say is that I, you know, one of the reasons I like the books is yes, they're dense in parts. I think the Fellowship of all three of the books is the most approachable, most interesting, because then it devolves into walking and battles and, you know, giant spiders. But the the language is what got me. That's why the Silmarillion was interesting to me. The appendices as I was, I never, I don't think I was ever on track to become like a, um, you know, a philology major, whatever that major would be, linguistics or language. But I, the language is wonderful. I think we can all agree that Tolkien wrote the best, uh, the wrote the best D and D source book ever created. <laughs> the best appendices, the definitive. Well, he wrote the source book for like all high fantasy of the twentieth century, right? Well, right. I mean, and <laughs> right. and it's always funny to me as someone who has who has played played a lot of D and D as a kid, and and more recently that. I, I always look at the wait, but there's a wizard. He's got a staff and a sword. Wizards aren't supposed to have swords. <laughs> like there's, it's you know the the impact that he has had has spread so far and led to these other worlds and you know these rules of fantasy. Right. That it's funny to then go back to the original, you know, the source of so much of this and realize, yeah, he wasn't as strict about some of these things as all the people later who really wanted to construct rules and logic for all these fantasy magic <laughs> systems and all that. You know, he he played a little more loosey goosey. Andy, was it you? Did you say it was he wrote his own fan fiction? Who, who yeah. that was, and I think that's I've never thought about it that way before, but it was true. He developed the languages and then he needed to have a culture that went with them, so he wrote books. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's I think you're you got it exactly right. And he was and, also trying to retell, he wanted to give England a mythic past, yes, that of its that own, it didn't of its own. And this is essentially a you know, it, it is England, it is Middle Earth, is well, England, right. and and it's sort of somewhere between like the you know, the the Danes and the Vikings and waves of invasion and whatever. And, it, and it's an allegory for the, I mean, it's also an allegory for the world wars, you know, well, at the same time. I know he it's weird, he claimed that they weren't and they so clearly are, but he wrote a lot of War of the Rings before World War II, but still, right? But he fought in World War I. One, yes. And, you know, that clearly impacts how he feels about this. I mean, I yes. thought today in particular watching Return of the King at the very, you know, as you get towards the end and Frodo sits there going like, how do you pick up your old life? Like, yeah. That to me is yeah. like, that's a veteran coming back good. from war, right? You know, and clearly I read a little bit of his bio while I was sitting there watching the movie and about, you know, he was convalescent and, you know, injured and all that in the hospitals. And it's, you know. I think it's impossible for him to have written that without that experience informing it. And then you look at the World War II parallels, and even if it's not directly intended, you know, to be so, it it comes across very strongly. Yeah, it, it's it's uh it, it's very clear. Right down to America saving the day. <laughs> Is America 
Gandalf? No, it's the Eagles, dude. Come on. (laughs) The Eagles swoop in. How could you get any more blatant than that? (laughs) They wait to the last minute and then swoop in. You're right. Pride swells in the heart of the American bear. It's it's Franklin Roosevelt is riding on an eagle and he just swoops in and kills. (laughs) I think I saw that on the Stephen Colbert. A little too late because the story is really already over. That's the extended, extended edition. It is amusing that Stephen Colbert is a massive, crazy Lord of the Rings fan. Yeah. When Viggo Mortensen was on uh, the Daily Show when uh, before the Colbert Report had started, and he brought apparently some incredible gift to Stephen Colbert, and they cut to like an inset of Colbert reciting the entire history, uh, <laughs> like the, reading the appendices from memory. He does Tom Bombadil when uh, he interviews Neil Gaiman on the Colbert Report. No, he, does, really? he just off wow. the top of his head, he's talking an interview, and then he just does like the whole Tom Bombadil song. It's he is oh, yeah. he is quite the fan. Well, do you, you you saw you saw the week when he had like almost the entire cast and Jackson on uh, for the entire week. No, and that's when you, it. Oh, you should. Oh, you have oh, to I see have to this. Find that. That's fascinating. Because yeah, because again, these are people who've been living in this universe. Like Peter Jackson has been living in this universe for what, like ten years, more than ten years, yeah. and yet, like Peter Jackson will say, and then yeah, there was the t- and then well, the thing is, we had we had a problem finding the sword that. Um, I don't remember was that, and then then and then Colbert will talk about will not only correct him about the movie, but also will talk for two minutes about. Oh yeah, you're talking about blah 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 blah, which was the sword that was forged and forged by the heart of this. Andurial, the sword by, and he's broken. Right. Exactly, and he's going like deep catalog, and you can tell he's not just trying to do a bit. It's like just like any really really wonderfully enlightened nerd. It's like he cannot stop but share his excitement with the guy who directed this movie. Well, Jackson is probably also you know he's he's got it in terms to tone it down because he wants to reach a broad audience so he's simplifying everything and he's in that whole frame of mind and then Stephen Colbert is basically like no 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 don't simplify let's get into this here's the thing that impressed me about that interview one of the interviews I saw all those interviews and one of them uh, they mentioned that when Stephen Colbert went down uh, to New Zealand when they were filming The Hobbit they had a Tolkien trivia contest with the with the crew with the crew of of the movie and Stephen Colbert won and I don't think the people there were pulling their punches. So that's not, ju- that's not just that, me. but I think I, th- I think one of them was actually one of the researchers that they have like that on set. Yeah, it yeah. was like all all the biggest nerds from the movie. The people who speak fluent Elvish are there. I mean, that's the right. thing. They're the Elvish consultants who speak it in their spare time. Who finally found a purpose in life to be consultants on this movie, and he probably beat them too. <laughs> and, see, and I don't think they let him win because he's a celebrity. Those like the nerds who are there, you know, go to guys oh, for yeah. book facts on the movie. They wanted to beat him, and they didn't. So that that gave him the most credit for me. Hilarious. Well, John, it's just like if they asked you into a Star Wars trivia contest. Uh, I'm not good at Star Wars. You're the Star Wars trivia ringer. Oh, okay. Then I'll do it. Tap in. Tap in for John. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll do a little tag team. It'll be fine. <laughs> Who's the saying before that, like, the, the extended editions? Like, you know, well, you know, if you're really into the books, maybe you like them adding that junk, but yeah. you don't need it otherwise. I, I found, I do really like the books, and I found that when I see the extended ones with the extra stuff in it, I would expect the extra stuff to say, oh, like all these gaps in this big Swiss cheese of a movie that I'm seeing when they add the stuff, and at least they'll fill in some of those Swiss cheese holes. And in some way, somehow, it just makes more holes. Like by adding more material, I'm like, yeah. no, it's it's breaking it up even more because there's a whole sections that you didn't want to even think about. And they said, actually, we're going to have one two and a half minute scene about that. And you're like, well, wait a second. Now you've just opened an entire door here to this whole other thing that you're talking about. And there's the extended it, scene it, in the extended it, edition, uh, the bit where um, uh, Aragorn is in the stables and one of the horses like, oh, his rider has been lost. He can't be tamed. And he goes over and starts talking to the horse in Elvish. Bregorn or whatever his name is, and he calms down, and then Eowyn has a scene with him, and she realizes who he is, and I was like, 
it was a great scene, but you're right. It's like, wait a minute. They can talk to horses. There's a, what? You know? well, he sings the song about Baron and everything in, the, in, in right. Fellowship. And People talk to horses all the time. Yeah. They just don't talk back. That's right. Also, the guy who plays the horse is great. <laughs> it's two guys. One in the front, one in the back. Spoilers! They're both in the back. I understand it was a dog in a motion capture suit. If you want a really good horse, you got to get and you got to get this one. They're dog. all Andy Circus by contract. No, no, no. This dog is like the Andy Circus of dogs. If that hasn't been done yet. It needs to be done. That's great. Do, do, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel a little bit low though? Like you got these drug addicts that they can initially like get high off of you know they get a, have a couple of beers they get a buzz and oh my god they're out of control and then the more they drink the more they need the more alcohol the more drugs they need to consume to get that kind of high they're looking for Are you talking about and the I filmmakers think with, with, oh no i'm, I'm talking well, i'm talking about like <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about fans that are like, sure. oh fans okay you're, you're talking earlier about how jr uh, tolkien like you, was you, in what, a drunken you, stupor no go ahead <laughs> smoked a little too much you, pipe weed I, I, yeah how you want how you as a fan you want to see them go deep catalog like that because that's the stuff you want to see and i think in all kinds of different kinds of nerddom like in hitchhiker's guide movie i didn't want to see a linear two-hour version of like the first book i wanted to see them put as many details as possible from where i could things i could recognize as oh okay the elitinil scene that actually came from the radio series i think it was series a later series because they because there's a there was a uh there there were these two clubs they were a clone and an anti-clone. The way they got them, and one was called a litnil. The other one called was, was called lintilla. And nobody knows, nobody cares. But this is the level at which I want to be entertained by a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie. And this is the equivalent of. I just need to go to the liquor store, get whatever is really, really cheap and high in content, and drink five gallons of it before I can face my day. That's how deeply I've gone into this rabbit hole of fandom on this thing. You know, I I don't I I just don't feel like the added material. And granted, I've only seen the originals the one time in the theater, so I haven't done a, a an in depth uh, look. But they're marked. The scenes that are added or extended are marked in the DVD liner notes. And you know, to me, it felt like they added a lot of interesting, quiet uh, character scenes and scenes yes. about things that that uh, were not uh, you know that they they cut out because they needed to have the plot have its arc for the version that although long was short enough to be shown in a, in a movie it's theater the, it's the tips right? of many more icebergs that's and the, I'm, that's the right issue. right but but it adds a richness to me and as somebody who hasn't you know who read the book once and does not consider myself a lord of the rings fan by any stretch of the imagination to me i prefer those editions because i like dipping into the those things and i like those quiet moments and 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 that richness that adds to it in a way that uh in my mind makes them better movies it also turns it from being a series of of really long movies into, like I said, into almost like a miniseries. <laughs> and it may just be that it plays better for me and it works for me in that scenario. But some of the stuff that they added, you know, in, in, in even in Fellowship of the Ring, there's some quiet, there's some ho- extra Hobbit stuff. And then there's some, some quieter moments uh, later on when they, when they get to, uh, to uh, Rivendell and it, uh, you know, it's, I'm not, I'm not sitting there going, Oh, finally I get the name of that, that thing in Elvish. It's, it's not that it's more like, I like, I like seeing a little bit more of this world as part of my 11 hour journey. You know, the thing that got me though, is for all that with the extended edition and the main film, 
there are some significant omissions, too. The scouring of the Shire is one of the most powerful parts of Lord of the Rings because it brings everything home. It brings it to Earth. It's the end of the tale. I know there are so many endings in the movies. It's true. Well, yeah, I know. In the book as well. I demand but, one more ending. But the death of Saruman <laughs> is kind of cast away in the books or in the movie. Saruman <laughs> sort of dies. It's The Saruman scene is even not, I think, played nearly as well. That's a very cinematic scene in the book and not played as well. The scouring of the Shire is very cinematic and I think critical – in many ways, to the conclusion of the book and what yeah. happens, them taking back their own lives, changing the identity. And it's and, omitted. Yeah, it's just, you know, you're like, they go home, they sit in a bar, and they're like, I guess we're back. It's like, oh, come on. And Tom Bombadil, who, by yeah, the way, I, mean, I, think I, is, I think is one of the worst things in the book, and so I was happy that they took that part out. But <laughs> I love Tom Bombadil. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, see, a, a bunch of you have said so far that you don't like long things. You didn't like the long book. Andy thought it was like slogging through mud. The movies are too long. I like the long book. I read all thousand pages. Roger Ebert said the most perfect thing possible that no good movie is long enough, no bad movie is short enough. It's not the length; it's what <laughs> yeah. you do with it. Well, you said you said the like the reading the books was like uh, slogging your way through. But now, see, I, I can I can long. It's because they're slow. I know, but I can. It's just it's, it was, it's, it's the it's the density. I know, you know like I can, I can relate to that. Like I can yeah. see that in the books. I see it in. I mean, uh, despite the fact that I don't read very quickly, lo- most of my favorite books are more than a thousand pages. And there's something about j- just the length in and of itself. Like the fact that it's slow paced, that it's boring, that it's like slog. Like that, the experience of reading Lord of the Rings has that feeling to me of like I want it to be just long and leisurely and casual and why is that not boring what's the line between long and leisurely and casual and, and detailed and and mind-numbingly boring i don't know i don't know why what causes it to cross over the line but that's how lord of the rings feels to me it's i want it to be just a very long thing with lots of details that takes its time well, you want it to be rich and interesting well even even though i said that like that they were they were adding you know the, the scenes in the movies didn't make it more coherent just made more holes if given the choice of which one I would want to watch, I would want to watch the extended because, at the very least, what they do is add a little tiny, tiny bit of that feeling from the books. That yes, it's the long, very long sort of, you know, it's taking its time getting where it's going. It's not in a rush. It's not trying to be a three act play. It's like nine thousand discs. Yes, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like Photoshop slip shipping on five and a half inch floppies is what it was. Installing Lord of the Rings, ninety percent done. It doesn't make for a better movie, but it does give me. A little taste of that feeling that I like from the book. Right. And that's how I judge yeah. these movies. Uh, apart from judging them on movie making, which is there are many things to complain about there. I say, OK, there's something in the book that I like in, you know, in Helm's Deep, something I like about Hobbiton, something I like about Gollum, you know, that sticks out of my mind. Did they get extract, like ring out any of that thing and put it in this movie, even if it's done in like an inaccurate way and, you know, the surrounding stuff is dumb you know, whatever it is that you're thinking of, did they get any of that in here? So, like, the Helm's Deep Battle is a good example. I get a little bit of the same feeling from reading the Helm's Deep Battle as I did in the Helm's Deep Battle in the movie. So, good job there, right? And so that's what I, that's how I have to judge it, is look at every one of these scenes. I really hate that Tolkien left out the part where Legolas sleds on the shield. Oh, yeah, that, that was not, yeah, that feeling is not a feeling that I get. <laughs> no, I mean, but, but, no, that like, was, that's a, that's a, mis- that's a mistake. No, it's awesome. I'll stand, I will defend it to the death. It's, it's great. It's like a hoverboard in Middle it, Earth. That is why it is awesome. <laughs> I want to pick it back on something John said there, which is about pacing, because this is, this is something that I've been thinking too, which is uh, what you want you know, you don't, if you're running a marathon, you don't start sprinting, right? You don't, because it's a long, it's a different kind of race. And a, a thousand page novel in small print 
is a lot of words, and it's not a short story, and it's not a short novel. And when I talk about watching the extended editions and watching them over six nights, that's the mindset that I'm in, is I'm happy for it to be as leisurely as it wants to be, and for me to for them to add these scenes in that add to the richness, but don't necessarily resolve the you know the the plot holes or anything like that. They just add to the richness of this world that I'm immersing myself in for the better part of a week, and that you know to me that is the difference here. Is that is that um, I'm not expecting this. It's that miniseries thing. I'm not expecting this to be a movie and holding it to the the judgment of a three hour movie because it's not. It's this sprawling 11-hour thing, or in book form, you know, it's a gigantic tome. Yeah. And and if anything, I ding the movie for when it's not long enough. Like, in the book, the feeling when they're going through Mordor, and it's just like this totally blasted landscape, and they have no water, and they're just miserable. And in the movie, I'm like, wait, that was like three scenes. They're already through that? That should have been much longer. That, that should be just an incredible slog of just torturous and starving to death and not knowing how they're going to... And they did it in like, only, what was that? Okay, it was 45 minutes. But still. <laughs> so, like, so you want you want all of Mordor to basically be the entirety of Lawrence of Arabia inserted within Return of yeah, the King. Yeah, at, at least. Like with that, because again, like again, judging the sections of the book, how do I feel when I'm reading about Sam and Frodo going through Mordor? I feel like it's miserable. I feel like it's hopeless. And like, did they capture that in the movie? Not really, because they were too busy with the Gollum stuff, which is fun and everything. But like, it, it, they had other things. They kept jumping back and forth to what's going on, you know. Because in the book, they do also not jump back and forth as much. They have like, here's a solid thing of Sam and Frodo. Here's a solid thing of what's going on with uh, with uh, yeah, with, they, with uh, Aragorn and everyone. But they, they they can't. You can't do that in a movie, right? Yeah, and but but that's what I'm saying. Like, it, in certain aspects, I feel like they did they didn't. It, the movie wasn't long enough. And and this is the only way I can judge this movie because like I watched them and I enjoyed them. And all I'm looking for here is, did you reproduce that thing, good th- feeling that I liked about the movie in some form? Because co- it doesn't hold together coherently. And the movie making is very ham-fisted. And there are many things not to like about it. Uh, but I like the world so much. The reason I like watching the movies is like, yeah, they do occasionally hit those little notes of like, oh, yep, I like that. Oh, yep, I like that. I like that from the book and I like that. But if I had never read the books and just watched these movies, I would be like, oh, my God, I'm never watching those movies again. Here's a radical proposal. Like, what if they you were able to buy a libretto form of this movie? Just like an opera, like it's, in a, it's like the operas are often like they're hours and hours long. They're in a different language. They're stories from a different time in a different country. And so it's not considered cheating that there is a printed libretto that will say, here is the story that you're about to see in, in the form of like – six pages you can definitely follow so that you kind of know how you certainly know how it's going to end you know what the major story beats are and now you can sort of just sit back and relax and enjoy the scenery the costumes and the performances so what if there were a version of that like for the lord of the rings movie where the phantom edit <laughs> well no 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 I'm not, I'm not talking about an edit i'm just talking about what if you were to summarize it and here's here 12 here's a 12 page version of this movie that will just, sh- just walk you through beat for beat for beat not even like subhead here are the characters but the st- retell the story in the form of 12, of 12 pages I think it's called the the Wikipedia entry. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I don't. I don't want to go by the Wikipedia entry. I, 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 this, I think the key is this cannot be written by anybody who has read the book more than once. <laughs> that I don't want people to say, "Oh wait, but oh wait, I didn't talk talk about what happens in in, in, in Hell's Deep." Okay, first of all. It's a, it's I, if if you had that sort of orientation around you, even when reading the books, that would uh, it would allow you to sort of let go of this idea of I've. I I, you know, I can't keep track of all these names. I keep can't, I can't keep track of all these locations. You can just sort of enjoy the story as it's being un, un, unfolded. I mean, one of the one of the problems with it is that 
at least like in the Star Trek universe, if someone has a name like it's like, okay, he's a Klingon. I don't know what he's after, but I know that he's a Klingon. Whereas, is there Boromir, Floromir, Dastamondoidir? Like, okay, those are four different species, but they're all essentially daughters and sons of the same traveling salesman from two generations ago because they have the same root of the last name. Uh, And this goes back to all the things my wife was confused about, right? There's, There's Rohan. Um, and there's Gondor, and they're all humans, but the, some of them ride horses, and some of them don't ride horses. I found myself explaining this stuff to my son when yep. he's watching it, pausing the movie frequently to explain. Because, like, I feel like you can't you can't even yep. follow this. Say, look, okay, they're in Gondor. I, I, what I would do is I would go to the map that helpfully comes with the extended edition. <laughs> yeah, I just want to watch the movie. <laughs> and say, look, here's here's Gondor, here's Mordor. So, like, that's why they're worried about because they're always there right by Gondor's door, and Rohan's up there. But then when they got attacked, they didn't come and say, like, I have to explain the geopolitics otherwise like i didn't think an eight-year-old could understand why are these humans mad at each other like see it's because of where they yes. live and because of like and that he's the steward he's not the king because the yep. king is gone and who is the guy who's related to the king you know a tiny throne a tiny throne when mordor assassinated <laughs> archduke franz ferdinand yes yeah, I mean, seriously because how can otherwise like i mean you can have a world war one movie i guess without knowing where world war one happened but this is like the whole point of this is like it's like geopolitics and and how can you how can you understand what at stake in these battles and why these people are mad at each other and they do put that in their performances of like who's mad at who for what reason because of who's dead relatives and so on and even all the way back to Isildur which they're nice enough to put in the in the beginning of the movies like no, you know. I, I'd argue that's one advantage of the movie over the book is it opens with an actual explanation of the scope of what's going on and why right. everyone's so freaked out because in the books you're like oh things are great in the Shire but yeah it takes a long time to get to a point why you're why anyone is worried about anything and and the, you know it's a tool of suspense it's why the fellowship you know you get the, you get all these intervals and you get greater and greater evil you meet the the evil trees in the on the river you meet the evil barrow rights <laughs> well it's from the perspective of the hobbits more you meet or less, the yeah. ring wraths and then you build to like okay there's actually somebody even more evil than all of that and that's what it's all come about and the movie i think it's actually fine that they set the scene by saying all right there's this dude he's super evil we got rid of him sorta and then things got messed up so go <laughs> can we get some agreement that the best part of all three of these movies is the opening of fellowship where they do the backstory uh what's that the best the what the best part of all if you, if you had to pick what is the best part of all three of these movies i would say it's the opening the opening sequence where they show Sauron, huh. mostly because there's no dialogue. <laughs> it's also where you know they cut to it later because they have uh, they have um, uh, Elrond is recalling I was there three thousand years ago. You know, and they cut back to that scene. You're like, this would actually also be a good movie. <laughs> when oh this no, because happened. then they would start talking and have music cue- musical cues and <laughs> three good movies, Glenn. <laughs> Well, I want to defend. I want to defend as a whole. I really like Fellowship of the Ring. It is my favorite of the three. I think largely because the scope is smaller, it feels more personal. It feels more intimate as a movie. It has some of my favorite. John John was deriding the uh, the filmmaking as ham fisted. I think Fellowship has the best of any of it because it's not Peter Jackson going over the top. There are little shots I love. My favorite shot in the entire trilogy is the when they uh, the first time they leave the Shire and they end up on the road and Jackson uses the old Alfred Hitchcock vertigo, you know, pan or zoom in <laughs> tra- dolly back shot on the road and it gets that neat effect. 
Um, that, I love that's that what show. I would call ham fisted. You got it. You got it. Right the nose. <laughs> oh no, that's a beautiful. That's a great. It's a great moment. It's a great shot. Uh, no, um, I, I think fellowship is my, my least favorite, except for that one opening. Well, but the rest is it because I, you know, everything else starts to blur together after a while. Helm's deep looks a lot like the battling Gondor. You know, it's really like, oh, they're counting how many guys they killed. And these guys, well, but at least Helm's uh, deep, but like, Helm's deep they, is good. The, the filmmaking is focused. They build up to that battle. Even yeah. if you've forgotten why they're even battling, you do understand. <laughs> <laughs> and that, they're, that they have decided that their best option is to retreat to somewhere where there's no escape and that the bad people are coming. And, you you know, it's a good build-up. It's a completely different movie, though, because I think I think Two Towers and, and Return of the King are very clearly war movies, whereas The Fellowship of the Ring feels like an adventure movie well, to I, me. I, I'm with you in that once they get to Return of the King, the stakes for Gondor, it's like, do I really care what's happening in Gondor as much? Whereas yeah. Helm's Deep, it felt more personal, yes. like, oh, I know those guys who are holed up there, and they've got problems, and it looks like everything's against them, and here comes Gandalf, and it's yay, you know, like, I, I have the correct feeling. But Return of the King, it was like... It's too much CGI for me. I really like the earlier movies where the battles feel like you've got the Fellowship, right? And it really feels like there's these nine guys right and they're trying to get over you know basically to mordor but don't you feel like it, peter jackson's filmmaking skills i know they're filmed all at once but the, the, the filmmaking skills in fellowship it seems like he was just still finding his legs and it feels almost like it was made by like uh, the b team i don't agree because i feel mm. like it you know if you look at his earlier work it's very it's very much similar in the same way that if you look at like sam raimi directing spider-man it, he's got a lot of stuff that technically you know resembles stuff he did in earlier movies you know there's there's something distinctive about the way that peter jackson did it and it's it's odd i was just listening the other day because we talked about this a little bit in one of our previous podcasts you know that he has such an eclectic history coming you know film background before he gets into lord of the rings um but it seems to me that some of his yeah he he did some schlocky stuff earlier on but it, like i think part of that still continues with him i mean but you could argue the same thing about lucas and star wars with all the you know the wipes and stuff that was very much 1930s yeah that's kind of hand fisted too depending on how you look at it i think you know well that was an homage that's like that's like quentin tarantino doing grindhouse yeah but i think i think this would be i think without a lot of the stuff that makes it peter jackson and and some of it i find a little bit silly but i think without all of it it would have been very sterile uh and that i think would have bothered me more than something that's occasionally a bit kitschy some people do say it is it feels a little generic i don't totally agree with that but i see where they're coming from like they you know generic warrior guy generic elf guy like i don't think it is generic i think the art design I, right but I, that's not jackson as much as the, the source material again being kind of archetypal i know like I, I that's i think that's basically what they're seeing and they don't realize like this is the original it reminds me of the famous penny arcade comic that no one on this podcast will know what i'm referencing so i won't reference <laughs> it but someone in the audience will where uh gabe talks about uh what was it warhammer and world of warcraft anyway we'll put it in the show notes maybe oh yeah that's a good one <laughs> i have no idea what you're talking about I, I, two things i wanted to mention one is um uh, if we're talking about confusion and uh, and uh, stopping to explain what's going on, it's not like I don't do that for Game of Thrones too. First off, um, <laughs> and I'm going to pin this one on on Tolkien. Uh, having your most obvious present bad guy be named Saruman, and then having your other bigger bad guy named Sauron, is really confusing. Because it's like, yeah. which one is he? Are they the same? Are they different? It's like they're practically the same name. So that is uh that that's also uh super super confusing um and in terms of movies i actually think i prefer the two towers because i really like the uh, the helms deep scenes and i really enjoy the scenes with um with uh gimli and legolas 
I'm going to get all the names out and, and Aragorn uh, when they're kind of on the road chasing the orcs. Um, but that also leads to one of the big problems structurally with the, with this series of movies, which is the fellowship's not around very much. They're around for part of the end of the first movie. And then there's the, the breaking of the fellowship. And then in the second movie, Sam and Frodo go in this bizarre holding pattern where they go over to they go through the swamps to the Black Gate. They have to just circle over the airport. For yeah, a while. they they are they are literally in the holding pattern, right? <laughs> oh, it's the yeah. Mordor holding pattern. Burn off some fuel before the crash. It's just so they can so they can close out the movie and say, "Hey, look, remember us? We're going still going to that place." Hi, guys. They could they could not be they could literally not be in the second movie, and it wouldn't have any impact. They're they're barely in it anyway. I, I think there's some good there's some good character stuff that goes on but i agree sure. that plot wise not much happens with them exactly I mean, they, they, but that's kind of to john's point like they were just walking that's what they're doing that, that was the, that was the mechanics of having three movies yeah. right but it makes you feel like you're getting jerked around because they're not only are they walking they're like walking and then walking back right like by the end we're back at the river and what what are we doing here i feel like it's like uh like one of those uh family circus cartoons where billy's the like walking line. around the neighborhood <laughs> with the dotted line <laughs> <laughs> Stopped and had a sandwich, more elven bread. <laughs> to its credit, though, the movies, the movies scenes about Frodo and Sam walking around are pretty much just as boring as the book. They're a big. Uh, having read the book so many times, I have to skip over most of book five of six. Like I just go like, all right, I don't. None of this adds anything to me. When you say that you watched a movie and read a book, it usually means you watched the whole movie and read the whole book. This whole idea that you say, I watched the movie, but I fast-forwarded through lots of spots, that's not actually watching watch the, movie. the movie. Really, I mean, technically. Saw you, most you watched of it. some of the Once movie. Once I've seen it a certain number of times, now you're being silly. If, you've, if I've read the books ten times... No, I'm not saying there's anything shameful about skipping it. I'm just saying don't say that you watch the movie again if you fast-forward. And you can't skip parts. I mean... If- yes, you can, because you can... You, can, you, you, know, you know what's going to happen, and it's tedious. I don't need to watch well, don't read it again. Again. again unless it serves the point right. this is this is going to be sort of one of those fundamentalist arguments so i think we have to table that <laughs> no one. i think it was just, it's just some it's just semantics it's like all arguments I, I think you could argue that if you've read the book 10 times and then you and then you leaf through it in 11th you haven't read it in 11th time you've leafed through it <laughs> parts of it the walking parts Oh, the walking. The walking parts are boring in print as well as in the movie. Is the point. I've, I've looked at I've looked at the map on the end papers a lot. <laughs> so I've said that I like I said that I like the, the the two towers, but one of the reasons I like the two towers is because uh, of all this. It's like despite Sam and Frodo, because Sam and Frodo and Go- and Gollum, who's interesting, but they're like there's a whole half half the movie is a misunderstanding where they say take us to the black gate and he goes oh i didn't know you meant take me into mordor I, that's a totally different way and then they uh well sucks for you hobbits come with me and and, and then they get oh my you know that and that's a problem and it's a problem of the source material and it's a problem how you want to make three movies and you have to give it a, give it a plot but it, it's also just a problem that this this is a series of different stories, and the most interesting stories, at least to Peter Jackson, and and his judgment to a modern audience, are these battles and armies and horses and things like that. And the idea is it's supposed to be juxtaposed with this quieter story about Frodo's struggle with the ring and Sam trying to support him and Gollum trying to intervene and steal the ring back. And the problem with that is there's just not enough of that to carry the rest of the story. And so in the second movie, you know they kind of they kind of vanish and you feel like you know it's like those middle seasons of lost where they're just trying to stretch it out we got we're not ready yet just uh, keep on stretching it out and it's really that part is frustrating and uh, you know i i like i like 
the two towers really because Frodo's nowhere near Helm's Deep. You know, one of the things that I judge these movies on for my enjoyment is how much do I like the thing, the, the, the I guess the, the setting, the setting for the thing. How much do I like the setting? Uh, and, you know, they, they made all the, the wonderful practical sets with Hobbiton and the Shire and everything like that. Uh, but like, for example, Rohan, I like wherever that is in New Zealand that that was shot. I like the horses. I like all the, the mountains, hills, I like the wind swept areas. Yeah. Right. And I like less the giant, you know, CG city of Gondor or whatever. So a lot of a lot of my affection for the movie and, for example, in Fellowship, I like them going down the river. I like the big statues with yeah. the hands up that Glenn will know the names of. Like, oh, statues are great. Like those parts of the movie, like some people, we make fun of that spectacle. It's like if it was giant robots, we'd be like, oh, it's just a bunch of giant robots fighting. But there are beautiful places in New Zealand that are filmed in this movie in a nice way with with very hokey music over it. But, you know, <laughs> right. Well, and that's what I'm saying about the first movies. I feel like there is less of that. Uh, elaboration on what is already there and looks beautiful. I mean, even the smaller sets, things like Weathertop and uh, Eamon Hen at the end, which is like, I think my favorite like battle scene in the entire movie is Aragorn and against all the orcs. Yes. I mean, they, they orcs are really crappy, by the way. They die way too easy. The reliance on practical effects is what, in the same way that we talk about this with, you know, something like Star Wars, where the, the reliance on models over the reliance on the CGI stuff, which seems very soulless. I think that's, to me, what I really loved about Jackson's interpretation was I could easily see almost any other director going to be like, oh, well, we could make, you know, giant sets, but whatever, that's way too expensive. We're just gonna, we're just gonna do everything in CGI, you know, and we'll, we'll knock it off for half the price otherwise. But the soundstage at Weathertop was no good, though. No, I've been making, yeah, well, Weathertop press, but I've been making this argument for a Weathertop. decade is because when the, the Phantom Menace and others came out, and it was obvious from the beginning they were it had that green screen feel. Everything about it felt artificial. They were never interacting with real objects or real places. And you juxtapose that fellowship came out and it felt real. And I remember one of the actors talking about a scene in the Mines of Moria where he's like, We're in this room and it's like we're in the mines. Yeah, there's cameras and stuff. I look down the floor and there's a piece of paper. I pick it up and it's covered with dwarvish writing. It's not they they were in a space that was designed to make them feel real. Andy Circus, when he did the motion capture, was there acting with the performers. He wasn't it wasn't them acting to empty air and they dropped in the CGI later. They were all in a space working together that had real depth and character they could work through. There was a they could actually, you know, walk a half a mile or whatever. They weren't walking ten feet over and over again. Mm. Well, that's the depressing part of these movies is that I realized they spent so much money on these movies. And these are the people and the people who made these props cared so much. And yet still, I think some of the practical sets don't look that good. And like, because I, mm. what I'm comparing it to is the natural beauty of New Zealand, which they didn't have to manufacture. Like those mountains are there, right? And yeah. you can fly the helicopter over them and the sun actually sets. And it's like, boy, you know, you can't buy that. And they built these awesome sets and they did the best job they could possibly do with all this money. Like they built Helm's Deep and then sometimes <laughs> I'm like... Moria looks a little bit like a soundstage, guys. Sorry. I mean, like, how much better can they do it? Like, I'm I'm a big proponent of technology. I feel like you know, in 50 years, you could do Lord <laughs> of the Rings over again with CG much, and make it look better. How much better can movie. they do it, John? We'll have to invent time machines to go back in time, build Moria, <laughs> let it age for thousands of years so they can come back and film in there. But you can use a computer for that. I'm saying, like, like this is the best that they probably could have made it, given the amount of money. But still, sometimes you're like, like, and really, what ha what happens is, be compared to the actual natural beauty of a real place. Uh, the sets that we build can't hold up to that. That's, you know, the Lawrence of Arabia effect is like, look, that a real desert, you know, looks good on camera. Uh, but if you have to do stuff on a soundstage, it looks very different. So I'm not fault the filmmakers for that, but it just goes to show, like when they said this movie, these movies were unfilmable, I kind of see why they would say that because they did, they, these people, it's like, this is a great team. They really wanted to do it. 
But still, sometimes I'm like, oh, forced perspective not quite working for me there. Oh, that set's not that great. I know your props are beautiful. You know, if you listen to the director's commentary, I've listened to Jackson and his wife and the um, the writing partner. Talk, I, I can't remember which one I watched. It was a couple of years ago. And there's a part where they're they're actually they're joking there because they go through and they're like, yeah, and they're like, well, for the 25th version 20th anniversary edition will change that and they all start laughing and it's clear that they have a list in their head of all the stuff in different scenes they start talking about it and they're not being negative but they're being a little wry and they're, they're like oh yeah well, he wanted it to look like that. We couldn't. They're like, ah, for the 25th anniversary edition. So, you know, they've got like a shot list of what they're going to do when the technology is, you know, with, uh, rendering is a thousand times they're gonna, better. They're going to insert Hayden Christensen as one of those ghost kings. Legolas shot first, man. <laughs> Dan mentioned Weathertop. And John was talking earlier about things that uh, he sees in his mind when he's reading the book versus what was in the movie. Um, two things in this movie matched more closely, I think, than any... Um, movie i've seen based on a book well other than i guess like watchmen where they literally took the pages and made them the storyboards well when it's also when it's a yeah when it's a comic book right it's a little bit different but but the the scene where they hide under the roots of the tree to get off the road when the uh, when the nazgul come by is exactly how i pictured it when i read the book that's that's also a great scene i love that i love everything about the beginning when the you know they're running away from the ring rates right nice and scary it's very it's very atmospheric yeah oh yeah and my my kids were definitely terrified at that part which was good because they're (laughs) supposed to be that's a they're scary it's the screeching and it is that screeching. The, no, it's not the screeching. It's the sniffing. The sniffing part is the oh, part that man, always creeps that's the right. hell out of me. The, and Weathertop. Weathertop actually looks like I thought it would So look. you pictured it as a soundstage? No, it's a, it's a hill with rocks, right? I it's felt a, that it was a little Highlander-y, actually. The last with time rocks. I watched it, I was surprised I by like how it. much it didn't hit me the right way. Although it oh, I love Weathertop. Helicopter shots. I, uh, now, John, you mentioned helicopter shots. Yo, I, I'm totally with you. I'm totally with you. The, it takes me it takes me out of the whole story where I'm like, what, what am I? Am I flying? That's a helicopter. <laughs> You're That's, an eagle. Feels, they put a camera on an eagle it, and it, flew it. They yeah. take me out of it every time, and they're beautiful shots of the scenery, but it takes me out of it. The signal fires is the one time it works, because then it actually makes sense you're following the signal fire, but... I do like the helicopter shots, if only because it's like, wow, they really, like, think how much land they had to clear out of, like, any people filming. They're like, there's, there's like, 100 miles around. There's nobody there but these six guys. It's impressive and beautiful. It just takes me out of the uh, out of the movie entirely, yeah. and I think that's a helicopter. And I do every single time, I think that's a helicopter. And it, and it, it just, there's something about it that uh, it's Plus, too bad. It's, it's, in, it's interesting to think about, like, how, how we've been programmed by previous movies. It's like, whenever I... I see a, a movie that's filmed on an epic scale at some point i'm drawing back on the language that i learned like with those huge like cinerama like david lean well, yeah, like lawrence of arabia from, from the 60s mm-hmm. right and like well he, he didn't have a helicopter available he had a huge freaking platform that he locked the camera down on and so and, and also he didn't have like five well okay occasionally he had a couple thousand extras but rarely could you have <laughs> five thousand extras in monster costumes swarming in a formation that is really kind really very very good but it looks like it's been so nicely tweaked to make sure that every orc is exactly where this creature needs to be and so it kind of undermines the reality of it that if he just went to one establishing shot that says okay by the way huge field of battle a million things going on you got five you got three seconds to look at that and now boom okay let's let's put you down on that, that field of battle and you'll be able to see like different spots about it because yeah the the fourth or fifth or sixth time you see that helicopter shot that sweeping you know you, you want to hear the 
I'm like, okay, so I'm being, I'm a mouse. I've just been caught, carried aloft by a hawk. I'm about to be devoured and eaten, but I get to see, you know, the hills of New Zealand before I go. Okay, that's nice. Nice last thing before I die. So this is the part uh, where we, where like Peter Jackson, I say I'm going to split this podcast in two, perhaps three now, two. So uh, we're going to stop it here. We will pick it up in the next episode where. I hate to say it, but I think there's going to be a lot of wandering around with hobbits and Gollum and maybe some battles. But in this episode, I, I think we're just going to end it here and I'm going to say goodbye for now to the members of my fellowship. John Syracusa, thank you. Not all those who wander are lost, Jason. <laughs> Please come back next time for more wisdom like that. I will. You promise? I do. Okay, good. Dan Morin, thank you for taking half of this journey with me. I really hope that someday I get compared to Boromir. Wait for it. Glenn Fleischman, uh, thank you for being here. Uh, I hope there's more Elvish in the next episode. Oluthian Tenuviel. <laughs> I hope there's less Elvish. Couldn't have said it better myself. And Andy Anatko, thank you for being here too. As soon as this podcast is over, I'm going to have big taters, big full taters, baked potatoes loaded with butter if I ever get home after this podcast. And a nice fat coney. Until next time when we talk about many more lords, many more rings, elfie, dwarfy, Hobbit 1, Hobbit 4, <laughs> not so much about Hobbit 2 and 3. Uh, this is Jason Snell for The Incomparable. Thanks for listening. Come back. We promise we'll talk about this more in another episode. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.